Uh, many of you know, but I, I love to read. Um, I love reading stories uh, of all kind, fiction, nonfiction, adventure, um, all sorts of things. What did you say, Emily? Oh, yes, kids, there are activity banks. So if you, uh, parents, if you need your little ones to have some stuff to keep themselves occupied, they're at the back. Thank you, Emily. I totally forgot about that. Um, so love to read, love stories, love fiction, nonfiction. Um, specifically, I just love um, just grand, epic tales, stories of heroes and good versus evil and sacrifice and redemption. Uh, many of you know that one of my favorite series is Lord of the Rings, um, love the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, Star Wars, whatever it is, just like epic, grand tales of good and evil, and, and the hero wins the day. And there's actually even just moments in those stories, moments that you read or now with uh, the, the day and age that we live in, moments that you watch of your favorite stories on television or in the movie theaters that just like really resonate with you. Maybe you're like me. Like when I went to see The Lord of the Rings and The Two Towers and The Battle at Helm's Deep and it All Hope is Lost and then Gandalf comes riding down the hill with the sunrise and he like saves the day when they thought, well, we're all going to die. I think I actually cried in the theater, like manly tears though. But I just cried. I was like, that is so uh, amazing. Or, um, you know, when Darth Vader at the end finally is redeemed and he turns on the emperor and saves his son, Luke. And if you haven't seen it, it was spoilers, but it was like 50 years ago. But that amazing moment or, you know, Aslan gives his life for Edmund and he dies and then comes back to life. All of these amazing just moments in stories where good wins over evil, or uh, the, the, the hero comes to save the days. It just resonates with us. Even in our culture, um, we resonate with these stories. Um, this is why we flock to movies about heroes, and we love TV shows and movies about good versus evil. I, I, like, I've seen movies where uh, evil wins in the end, and it just makes me feel sick. It's just like, ugh, that's a terrible story. No one wants to see evil win. And that's why we flock to these types of stories. Now, I've thought about, well, why? Why does most people, probably everyone, why do we all love these kind of stories? And really, I think that it's because they're all shadows. They're all just glimpses of the one true and better story. And that is the story of Jesus. Um, there is something in the human heart and in the human soul that longs for the story of good versus evil and good winning and the hero saving the day and sacrifice and redemption. We long for those things to be true, and that's why we love those stories. So for the next two Sundays and for Good Friday, we want to celebrate and remember the greatest, most beautiful story that's ever been told and it's true. Not only is it a great story, it's actually true. It happened. And this is the story of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the story of our salvation. So we've, we've titled the, the, this kind of whole series, today is the beautiful celebration, Good Friday is the beautiful 
sacrifice, and then Sunday, uh, next Sunday is the beautiful resurrection, and just, just talking about the beauty of this story. Why, why does this story resonate with so many people? So our story begins this Sunday with a, with a celebration. Um, Palm Sunday is the Sunday that we remember when Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. So here's my goal for this morning. I want to read the account uh, of this story from John chapter 12 and try and understand, okay, what is going on here? How did the crowds and the disciples and the Pharisees, how did they view this event that took place? And then why is this celebration on Palm Sunday so beautiful when it seemingly caused so much confusion and heartache and pain afterwards? Why would we say, oh, that's just a beautiful celebration when the vast majority of people actually misinterpreted what, what it meant? And then what can we kind of glean some, some principles for us this morning? So John chapter 12, um, I'll start reading in verse 12. So it says this, the next day... The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowds that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So amazing, like many of us know this story. We know the account, and maybe you've read it in the other Gospels, Matthew or, or Luke, but we know this account. It, it's this amazing moment where Jesus uh, rides into Jerusalem too much fanfare and excitement. Um, we've seen, if you remember when we studied the Gospel of John, you'll see that the, the popularity of Jesus is growing among uh, among the crowds, as we're reaching this point in the story. And now it, it's like all of this uh, popularity, it's just kind of bubbling over in this unbelievable display of, of worship. Now, th there were always large crowds at these feasts. This is the Passover, uh, a week-long uh, celebration, and uh, the population of Jerusalem would swell to massive amounts of, of people. Um, Josephus, who was a historian, he records in 66 to 70 AD that his numbers, he said 2.7 million people came to Jerusalem. Like, that's a lot of people. And Jews who would live in all the surrounding areas, it was like you make the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Now, we don't know how big the crowds were in that specific moment, but but big, right? We can expect that there was lots of people, maybe thousands of people who are participating in this. And so here we have Jesus, and he's coming into Jerusalem, and there is all this commotion. And what are people doing? They're, they're grabbing palm branches, right? Like the, the kids came in, and they waved their palm branches. This was a, a sign of um, a victory over someone's enemies, 
It was a common thing. Like we, we look at that and like, why palm branches? But the palm branch was a symbol of its victory over your enemies. And so they would wave these palm branches. And in other accounts, they're throwing the palm branches on the road for Jesus to, to, to ride over. They're shouting, Hosanna! Right? And the word Hosanna means a, a couple of things. It means give salvation now or save us, we pray. So they're shouting out to Jesus, save us, Jesus, Hosanna, give us salvation. And then blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, This comes from Psalm 118. It says pretty much the same thing. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So they're shouting out, Hosanna, waving uh, symbols of victory over your enemies. And then they say, even the king of Israel. So this is the, the Messiah, right? The Messiah, it was prophesied, would be the king of Israel. He would come, save his people from their enemies. And so they're, they're like, this guy's it. Save us, Jesus. Uh, pictures of, of victory over your enemies. This is the king of Israel. So what we actually have here is a political rally. Um, that's what this is. Um, it, sure, there's, there's elements of a worship service, but their view of Jesus was that he was their political savior. This is a political rally going on. They're waving symbols of victory over their enemies, which would be Rome, and they're yelling, save us, meaning not save us like salvation, how we view it, spiritual salvation. They're like, save us from Rome, Jesus. Give us rest and peace after this long sorrow under Gentile oppression. And so what we see is these large crowds viewing Jesus as, well, here's our Savior. Here's our political Savior. He's going to come, destroy Rome, wipe out our enemies, set up Israel again as a sovereign, independent kingdom, and then we're going to rule forever. Like, this is exactly what the religious leaders feared. Right? If you study the Gospels, they're like, if, if this guy keeps growing in popularity, they, they said Rome's going to just come and destroy us. So this is exactly what they were fearing. Oh, I can't believe it's actually happening. We were worried that this would happen. So the general impression that you get from this passage is that most people in the crowd, now we weren't there, so we can't make a a judgment call for everybody, but most people in the crowd, I don't think, had a real heart interest in Jesus. Uh, they thought that he was their political freedom fighter, and they had seen many before Jesus who kind of rose up, rallied the troops, tried to overthrow Rome, and then got wiped out. And we know, I think I know this because the, the, this kind of fervor and excitement doesn't actually last long. In a few days, these same crowds, some of them, are going to be yelling to crucify Jesus. Isn't it amazing how fast that switches? Now, now we, not, maybe not everyone from these crowds, but the same crowds who are in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover are yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then like four or five days later are yelling, crucify him, kill him, we hate him. So you go, did they really have this heart love for Jesus? I don't think so. I think it's just, here's a guy that can get rid of Rome for us. But I want you to notice, Jesus actually doesn't 
reject the crowd's acclamation. He doesn't say, no, 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 shh, it's quiet. Don't say stuff like that. Don't do that. Don't call me the king. Don't, don't praise me. Don't worship me. Don't say Hosanna. He doesn't do that. Like earlier in the Gospel of John, uh, a similar thing happens. They try to make Jesus king by force in John 6 when he feeds all of them. And Jesus just basically runs away from them. He goes, I don't, I don't want any part in this. But now... He, he doesn't, right? He just comes in. But what, what Jesus does, his actions that he, that he does, uh, it, it, re, it, uh, it corrects the crowd's thinking, or it should, right? So in verse 14, it says that Jesus finds a young donkey and sits on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Um, this is really significant because these, these crowds are yelling and shouting out these political statements about Jesus, and Jesus specifically chooses a young donkey to sit on, uh, and that is actually a symbol of coming in peace. Um, in that day and age, if you were a conquering uh, king and you had gone and, say, you know, did battle and conquered another nation, then you would actually ride back into your home city uh, usually on a white horse, the best, uh, biggest horse you could find. And oftentimes, you would just lead a processional of um, maybe slaves that you had captured, prisoners of war, um, maybe if you had uh, uh, gotten you know, artifacts or paintings or gold or silver, you would just parade that around through the city streets to be like, look how great I am. <laughs> I'm an amazing king. Look at the size of my horse. Look how incredible I am. You should all fear and respect me. That was the common thing that you would do. But notice, Jesus says, I actually want you to find a young donkey. And then Jesus sits on a donkey, and then he rides in as king. It's like he's, he's dampening their nationalistic expectations. He's not on a war horse. He's not coming to to go to, to war against Rome and slaughter their, their enemies. No, he's actually riding in on a symbol of peace. He's coming in on a donkey. This is why we're told of some of the reactions. We're told that the, the disciples didn't understand these things until after Jesus was glorified, meaning he had been raised from the dead and he had been taken up to heaven. He had been glorified. After that, then it's like they remembered these things and went, oh, that's what that meant. But in the moment, it's like the disciples are going, I don't, Jesus, look at how popular you are. There are thousands of people shouting out, Hosanna to you. Why are you riding on this disgusting, dumb-looking animal? Why would you do that? Right? It's like they don't understand. And, and this is not the first time, right? The disciples are often like, I don't understand why Jesus is making the choices that he makes. Because even them, even the disciples had a wrong view of what Jesus came to do. Right? You're here to destroy Rome, right, Jesus? It wasn't until after the crucifixion, the resurrection, and Jesus ascended in glory, it, it was like all of a sudden they went, oh, now I understand why Jesus did that. Then we're told that there's kind of two crowds that are coming together. The crowds who were coming to Jerusalem for Passover and the crowds, we're told, that had seen the miracle. The miracle in chapter 11 where Jesus had raised a man from the dead. It's like that crowd came with Jesus, and now they were telling all of the other crowds in Jerusalem, do you know what this man did? Like, he just raised someone from the dead. Not everybody can do that. 
And then, that's why this excitement is growing. Wait, Jesus raised a guy that had been dead for like four days? So think about it. Surely, surely someone who can summon a dead man back to life, surely this is a guy who can deliver us from Rome. Like, think about all they've seen of Jesus. Jesus can miraculously feed them. We could probably feed our armies. Jesus can raise people from the dead. So if we battle against Rome and we die, he'll just raise us back from the dead. We're unstoppable. Right? That's why I think this excitement is growing. Like, look at what Jesus can do. That's why the Pharisees say in verse 19, oh boy, that's my paraphrase. Oh no, like we're, we're gaining nothing, guys. The whole world is going after him. Like, they've already told people, if you remember in our study, uh, they, they've, they've already told people, you need to report Jesus so that we can arrest him, right? That, that was the, the message that had been sent out to people. If you see Jesus, report him so that we can arrest him. And like, they're just ignoring the Pharisees. Hosanna, Jesus is here, palm branches. And the Pharisees are going, oh man, the whole world is going after him. This is not good. So it seems like there's all of these different things going on at this celebration. The crowds seem to have this view of Jesus as a political savior. He's going to destroy Rome. He's going to free us. It's going to be amazing. The disciples seem to just kind of be confused by everything that's going on. And the, the Pharisees view this as a threat. There's a loss of power for them. Jesus is just becoming too powerful. And so you kind of go, what is going on here, right? It's like so many wrong views of Palm Sunday, but you go, well, what, what, what actually is the significance of this? And I think you actually get a bit, of clarity, a bit of clarity when you read the next section of John 12. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. It, it wasn't because he just couldn't find any other animal. Well, I guess a donkey will do. It, it, it was very I mean, Jesus is in control. He knows exactly what he's doing. And what he's actually doing, I think, is showing us the upside-down kingdom that he is the king of. Um, so if you continue on, I think you get some clarity, in, in starting in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his, or whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So you see that there's even Greeks who have come to Jerusalem for Passover. These would be non-Jews, just people who feared God, who wanted to worship the God of Israel. So these are most likely Gentiles, non-Jewish people who are like, we just want to come and celebrate the Passover. And so they come to Philip and they say, we want to see Jesus. So now, notice that the Pharisees had just said, the whole world is going after Jesus. And now literally, that's happening. The Greeks, non-Jewish people, are asking, we want to see Jesus. Can we talk to him? And so Philip and Andrew report to Jesus this. And here's Jesus' answer, which is so amazing. He says, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
So the coming of these Gentile people asking about Jesus, Jesus says, okay, now it confirms that it's my hour to be glorified. And you would think, Jesus, wasn't your hour to to be glorified? Like the parade that just happened? (laughs) Wouldn't that be your hour to be glorified where all of the massive crowds are laying down palm branches and shouting out and calling you the king, but it's a couple of Gentile people asking to see you that you go, now it's my hour to be glorified. So notice that Jesus being glorified in his mind is not the fanfare. It's not the crowds. It's not the palm branches. Him being glorified is his coming death. And he says that much in verse 24. He gives this mini parable where he says, well, a grain of of wheat has to go into the earth and then it dies and then there's harvest. What Jesus is saying is that he came into Jerusalem specifically to go to the cross to achieve salvation for us. Death is actually a necessary condition for the generation of life. So Jesus is like, this is why I rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. That part was not me being glorified. Me being glorified is going to be hanging on a cross. And the fact that Gentile people are coming and asking about me, that's the signal that it's my time. Not the parade that we just had, but the cross. And then he applies it not only to him, but to his followers. He says, anyone who loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life will keep it. Anyone who serves Jesus will follow him. Where Jesus is, there his servants are. Anyone who serves Jesus, the Father honors him. So he's he's saying, not only am I living in this upside-down way where actually life and glorification comes through death, but he says, actually, my followers have to do the same thing. If you love your life, meaning if you are living for the here and now and the pleasure and the comfort and the ease of life, Jesus says, well, you'll actually end up losing it. And if you hate your life, meaning not that we walk around going, oh, I hate my life. But he says, if you deny yourself, if you take up your cross, if you don't just constantly think of your own self-interests, if you decline to make yourself the focus of all, uh, all your time and energy, Jesus says, well, then you'll, you'll end up keeping your life. So just, just notice the, the, the contrast of this celebration going on. The crowds are like, Jesus is king. Save us from Rome. Let's go, Jesus. And Jesus says, I have to die. And my followers also need to die and be servants of everyone. This is so upside down of what we think. Like, can you imagine being there? Imagine seeing Jesus, this great prophet who had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and he comes in triumphantly into Jerusalem. I, I know that I, I you know, we, we sometimes have like chronological snobbery where we're like, oh, I wouldn't get caught up in it. Yes, you would. You would have. Because how could you not? Like Jesus is amazing. And he just raised someone from the dead. And if you were a Jewish, you were raised in this worldview of a Messiah and a political king. And so can you imagine being there? And then it's like, he's coming. Jesus, we think he's it. And he's coming into Jerusalem. And yet we know that uh, Jesus just did not meet their expectations. Because he didn't come to do what they thought he was coming to do. Jesus didn't come for some political cause. He rode into Jerusalem on that day. He was coming to die. 
Um, Even in Luke's account of this, in Luke 19, when Jesus draws near the city, it says that he actually weeps over it. And Jesus says, if only you knew the things that would lead to peace. So notice that Jesus isn't just like, this is incredible. Look how many people like me. This is amazing. He looks at the city and the crowds and he weeps and he says, oh, if you only knew, if you only knew what would actually bring you peace. Jesus, is it you slaughtering Rome? No, if only you knew. What's going to bring you peace? The cross. If only you knew that. But they didn't. So I think this passage shows us a couple of different things. Um, Like I said, I think first, God's kingdom is just so, it's so different from the way that you and I would do things. And the, the, the way that the kingdoms of the world have operated Since the beginning, the the kingdom of God is so different from every other kingdom and king that we see. I mean, even if if you just read the Gospels, I mean, even the way that Jesus was born, what kind of king is born like that? To unwed teenage parents who were poor in a barn, essentially. And shepherds visit him first who were kind of low on the totem pole for society. Your king is born. We would go, what? That's how he was born? Not in a palace? Not surrounded by other kings? Um, even Jesus, his teaching, the Beatitudes, he says, like, Beatitudes literally means, like, happiness, blessedness. And it's like Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount by saying, I'm going to tell you guys how to be happy and blessed. Blessed are the poor. And you're like, what? Blessed are those who mourn. Right? And it's like, wait, that's, that's, that's a blessing to mourn? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. And all the things that we would go, that doesn't sound like a blessing. That sounds like a curse. Jesus flips it on his head and he says, in my kingdom, you are blessed if you're these things. Even in Matthew 23, Jesus teaches, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus teaches the first are last and the last are first. All of these upside down things, we go, well, wait a second, but that doesn't make any sense. I've been taught that if you're first, you're first. And you got to strive and work hard and be the best. And then you win. And Jesus says, actually, if you're last and if you serve everybody, then you win. So Jesus just completely rejected the crowd's view of his kingship. Was he still king? Yes, Right? They weren't wrong to, to wave palm branches and, and call him a king. He's, he's the king. Not only is he the king, he's the king of kings. But Jesus wasn't about the use of force or might or taking over. Jesus chose the cross. He chose to die. And then he calls his followers to die as well. And so for you and I, even now, we live in the kingdom of God. If you are a follower of Jesus, right, we're in this already but not yet waiting Period. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. If you follow him, you live in the kingdom now, but it's not like fully here yet. We're waiting for the return of Jesus for him to consummate and fully bring the kingdom. But we're in the kingdom now. We live now. And so Jesus calls us to live in his kingdom in this upside down way from your natural inclination. Like Jesus says, no, you know, you have enemies. Don't hate them. Actually love them. People persecute you, don't persecute them back. Actually pray for them. Lay down your life for the kingdom. 
Like Revelation 12 says, uh, talking about how do we as followers of Jesus conquer evil and conquer Satan. It says, they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb who was slain and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. So I think the the triumphal entry, uh, I think it, it shows us, it reminds us of how different Jesus is as a king from every other king and world leader and prime minister and president or whatever. And how his kingdom is so different from every other kingdom that's ever existed. Jesus comes in humbly. He comes in peace. He comes willingly to go to his death. He he comes to die for his enemies. And then he says, now you're my followers. Live like that. And I think sometimes we go, well, do we actually have to live like that? (laughs) Right? Let's, Let's actually take over by force. Let's, it's a lot easier to just kind of like be militant about our Christianity. Do you, do you know what will actually win people to Jesus? You dying to yourself. You saying, I'm actually going to serve those who hate me. I'm actually going to lay down my life for others. I'm actually going to give of myself. That wins people to Jesus. And that's how we live in, in the kingdom. We're called to follow our king. Secondly, I think the triumphal entry shows us that there are going to be moments when we don't understand what is really going on, but God is actually working out his providential plan in the midst of it. This is is exactly what was happening. Like, notice the differing reactions. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. I'm going to come in, I'm going to fulfill this prophecy in Zechariah, I'm going to ride on a horse, which is a sim- or sorry, I'm going to ride on a donkey, which is a symbol of peace and humility, I'm going to come in, and by Jesus coming to Jerusalem, he's essentially sealing his death. He's, he's going into the, the lion's den willingly. So Jesus knows what he's doing. God is working out his plan, and yet all of the different reactions, the crowds have a wrong view of what's going on. The disciples don't get it until after Jesus is raised and he goes back to the Father. It's like all of a sudden they go, okay, now we understand. We were so confused, but now we get it. And then the Pharisees are just threatened by all of this. And yet notice, God is just kind of working out his plan in the midst of all of that. Um, I've talked with so many people, and oftentimes when, when we go through really difficult seasons of life, and I talk to lots of you, because it's just a fact of life. You will go through storms and trials and hardships and pain and suffering. And usually the question that gets asked the most when people come to me and they go through these things, they often ask, I just don't understand what, what God is doing. I don't understand why God is allowing this to happen. Whether it's marital problems or it's someone in your family passed away or your kids are wandering away and being rebellious or you've lost all your money and you have to declare bankruptcy or on and on and on and on. All of these things. Oftentimes, without fail, one of the questions is, Andrew, can you just tell me why is God doing this? My plans, like what I had in my mind seem to be going so well, 
And yet, now God's kind of thrown me this curveball, and I just don't really understand. I'm sure that was happening to the crowds and the disciples going, well, wait a second. This political savior that we thought, he's not doing what we want him to do. God, what are you doing? And the disciples are going, well, now Jesus is dead. What are we supposed to do with this? We don't understand why God is doing things this way, and you and I often ask those same questions. Why? Why, God, are you allowing this to happen? Why are you doing this? But I think maybe, just maybe, God is actually accomplishing his plans that you just don't see yet. Um, One of my favorite books in the Bible is Habakkuk, and when we studied it, Habakkuk is an amazing book that wrestles with that exact question. Habakkuk looks out at his nation, at Israel, and there's sin and evil and wickedness and pain and uh, suffering and all of these things, and he asks God, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen? And God's answer to Habakkuk is, if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. Isn't that slightly frustrating, (laughs) if we're honest? But God says, I'm doing things behind the scenes that if I told you, you wouldn't even believe what I'm doing. And then then God graciously shows Habakkuk a little bit. He says, I'm actually going to use Babylon to punish Israel for their sin. And Habakkuk's response is not, okay, thank you for clearing that up. He goes, I don't think that's a good idea, God. (laughs) But at the end of the book, right, and let me, at the end of the book, after this back and forth between Habakkuk and God, and Habakkuk going, I don't understand, I don't like this God. Why is this happening? How could you do this? This is how the book of Habakkuk ends. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, and produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So basically, even if everything goes wrong, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Isn't that amazing? And we say that, but listen, it's really hard to get to that place where you go, even if, even if everything in my life is different than what I thought it was supposed to be, yet I will praise you. So how do you get there? It's, well, we get there because we know who God is. Right? Oftentimes when we struggle with this kind of thing and we go, okay, my expectation was here and God's doing something here. I don't understand it. We call into question God's character. We go, well, if it's not going the way I think, then God must be wrong. Or maybe he's not trustworthy. Or maybe, maybe he's actually out to get me. And listen, in the midst of your circumstances, you actually might not get all the answers until much later. And you actually might never get the answers until eternity, right? You you might be like the disciples when you pass away or Jesus returns and then you go, ah, now I understand what you were doing, Jesus. But in the meantime, you can actually trust in the God who is working out all things for his glory and for your good. I mean, Jesus, he, think about it, Jesus does not match the crowd's expectation, But what did Jesus come to do? He came to die to offer salvation to mankind. (laughs) Way better than just a political savior. Way better 
But in the moment, everyone's disappointed because they go, ah, it didn't really match up what I thought. And in your life, God will do things in your life that you go, ah, I don't like this. It's not matching up what I thought. But I guarantee you, because of who God is, his plans are way better than yours. So this celebration as Jesus enters, I mean, it just takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? It's so much more beautiful when you know what is going on beneath the surface that our king rides into Jerusalem and yet he actually weeps over how lost people are. He says, oh man, if only these people knew what would bring them peace. And here comes our king, not just a king, but the king of the universe, God himself in the flesh. And how does he triumphantly come into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey, weeping over his people's sinfulness. And he comes knowing that him coming to Jerusalem guarantees his death. And yet he willingly comes in. I mean, that's the king that we serve. That's why this celebration is just so beautiful. So, Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that today we can celebrate Palm Sunday that some 2,000 years ago, Jesus, you rode into Jerusalem as a triumphant king. But you did it in such a way to show the world and your people the type of king you are and the type of, the, the type of kingdom you rule. And it is so upside down from the way that we would do things or what we would expect um, Jesus, you didn't come in and meet the crowd's expectations of just a political savior who was going to destroy their enemies and set up this kingdom for them in the here and now. You, you came in just basically the opposite of that. The king, you came in to die. And so help us, Father, as we follow you to, to live with, with those kind of upside-down principles in mind. We're called to live in your kingdom in the here and now, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to lay down our lives for others. Help us to live like that. And, and God, I know that there are so many of us that life circumstances, we're asking the questions, well, where is God in the midst of this? Why is this happening? Why would God let this happen to me? And I pray that we would know that even though we don't necessarily have all the answers, we can trust you, God, because your track record is perfect. That your, your character is holy, good, and perfect. And that we might not get the answers to some of these hard questions until later on. We might never get them. But we can trust you, Jesus, because you came in on a donkey and you went to your death for us. And the crowds didn't understand it, and the disciples didn't understand it. No one seemed to understand what was going on. And yet, Jesus, you were securing salvation for us. So I pray that we would just rest in who you are, God, and that we can trust you in the midst of times when just life doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So thank you for today, God, where we can just remember this beautiful celebration and, and what it actually meant as you rode into Jerusalem. And so I just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.